Good morning, Moberly. Good to see you guys. Great to be back with you. I appreciate so much the great job that Jeffrey did last Sunday introducing our new series, The Remarkable Power of Jesus. But before we get into that, let me just tell you how excited I am to be starting a series this Wednesday night called Webb's Wednesday Evening Bible Study right here. Uh, it'd be 30 minutes long, 6 to 6.30. I'll be teaching the book of Revelation verse by verse. If you'd like to have one of my books, I wrote about it. It costs $13 on Amazon, or you can get one in the lobby today or Wednesday for just $10. That's a good deal. We're starting this series called The Remarkable Power of Jesus. And the good thing about this, folks, you know, every Sunday it's going to be all Jesus all the time. So open your Bibles or access your device to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, as today we're going to talk about the first Baptist preacher. You know, just about every town in America has what's called a first Baptist church because it was the first Baptist church there. For instance, First Baptist Church of Longview was started in 1871, but it is not the first Baptist church in America. That belongs to First Baptist Church, Providence, Rhode Island, founded by Roger Williams in 1638. I have always loved the fact that Roger Williams, who really loved the Lord and kind of got kicked out from the Puritans and moved to Rhode Island, I'm glad he named his home city God. Did you know that's how the early uh, settlers and our founders, that's how they referred to God as, as providence. And so he was really naming his town God. Now that building still stands. It's a beautiful white building. But you don't have to travel to Rhode Island to see it because some of you may know that on the campus of Dallas Baptist University, there is an, an exact replica of the exterior of First Baptist Church, Providence, Rhode Island. It is the Patty and Bow Pilgrim Chapel. A lot of chickens gave their lives for that chapel. <laughs> now, when we say that John was John the Baptist, really, he wasn't a Baptist like us. He was John the baptizer. Uh, but we'll talk more about this next week. But the word baptize is not a religious word. It's not a denominational word. It was a normal word in the Greek language that just meant to dip, to immerse, to plunge. And so if they had correctly translated, it probably would be dip. But that's okay with me. I, I kind of like Baptist better than dip. I'd rather be called Marberly Baptist Church than Marberly Dipper Church. Don't you think that... <laughs> That's probably a better title. So here's a trick question, so don't answer it too quickly. How many Gospels are there? Did I hear somebody say one? Yeah, if you said one, yeah, that's the correct answer. You're tempted to say four, but no. There are four Gospel accounts. It's not the Gospel of Mark. It's the Gospel according to Mark, according to Matthew, according to Luke, according to John. There's one gospel, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is salvation by grace through faith. Now, Geo did a great job last Sunday introducing the character of John Mark, and he was correct in saying that most Bible scholars believe that Mark did not initiate all this material that's written here. Peter spoke to him, and, and Mark wrote it down. We actually have some good evidence of that. Because in the second century, there was a bishop in current-day Turkey called Bishop Papias who actually knew John the Apostle. And by this time, John was all old, so he was called John the Elder. And this is what he wrote. The Elder John used to say, Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, 
wrote down accurately as many things as he recalled from memory of the things said and done by the Lord. So we could call this the gospel according to Mark as told by Peter. You know, this book is full of action, Mark's gospel. It's written really for a Roman audience because they, they love miracles, they love action. And there's one word that stands out, and it's actually a little word called ethus. It appears 40 times in 16 chapters. And you know what the word means? It means immediately, straightway in the King James Bible. In other words, so many things are happening fast in this book, the word that appears more than anything else is this happened, and then immediately this happened, then immediately that happened. So this is such an action-packed gospel. It's almost like a Hollywood movie. So as we dig into it, I felt like I ought to say, uh, lights, camera, action. Let's get into it. Mark 1.1, please stand with me as we read this first portion of Scripture from the gospel according to Mark as told by Peter. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel began when the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world, you know. But he was the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah, see, no birth narrative, no childhood of Jesus, boom, right into fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 43, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside, that's the southern part of Israel, and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and they were baptized. They were dunked, dipped, immersed by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with or literally in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'll give us all of us today a keen desire to live out the kind of life that you have for us, to be totally immersed in your life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Now, John was a strange guy. He was strange in dress. You know, he was a Nazarite, which means he never cut his hair his whole life, so you can imagine. He wore camel's hair coat, leather belt. He ate locusts and honey. Can't you just see him walking into the local McCamels and ordering a McLocust burger, heavy on the honey? And the kid at the counter said, wait for it, do you want flies with that? <laughs> Sorry. He was strange in diet, and he was strange in dress, appearance. I, I sort of picture John the Baptist as being sort of a cross between a homeless man and Bigfoot. I mean, he was scary, but he was a prophet of God. He kind of closed the gap between the 400 years of silence after Malachi until Jesus came on the scene. He was like a hybrid Old Testament prophet, New Testament preacher. And we're going to learn four truths about John the baptizer and how it applies to our lives in 2022. Number one, we are called 
to help people find and follow God. That was John's job, to point out Jesus Christ and let people know that is the Messiah. And and that's our calling too. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. He said, it's just a voice. He said, I'm not even a person. I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. So if any of you have ever watched The Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon is the night show, Tonight Show host now. Who was that before him? Yeah. Did anybody say it out loud? Jay Leno, okay? He did it for 22 years. But who did it before Jay Leno? Johnny Carson. He was there for 30 years. How many of you remember Johnny Carson? Some of you old folks. Yeah, there you go. Some of us old folks. So when Johnny Carson, when he was a host of The Tonight Show, there was this guy named Ed, Ed McMahon. And every night he would say, live from New York City, from the NBC studios, he'd go, here's Johnny. How many of you remember that? You know, for, for many, many years, you didn't even see him. He was just a voice. Then later he kind of got where he would just sit up there and talk some himself. Well, really, that's what John was doing. That's, he was a voice, live from Judea. From heaven, here's Jesus. That was his job, to point out Jesus Christ. He said, here's the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. You know, all the pictures and paintings you see of John the Baptist, he's pointing. Sometimes he's pointing to the sky. Sometimes he's pointing off. But that was his job, to point. You know, my wife tells me it's not polite to point, but that's what John the Baptist did. And you know what? Somebody pointed you to Jesus, right? Or you wouldn't be here. It might have been a parent. It might have been a preacher. It might have been a Sunday school teacher. For me, it was like an RA uh, director and Sunday school teachers. They all pointed me to Jesus. And that's what John was doing, and that's what we should be doing. He was the forerunner. He was like a spiritual highway builder. You know, when they built I-20 over here years ago, they had to take down some mountains. They had to fill in some valleys. That's what he was doing. He was, he was filling up the valleys of unbelief, and he was, he was tearing down the mountains of arrogance. He, he was straightening out the crooked ways of, of sin, and he was making plain the, way, the, the rough ways of doubt so that people could have an easy access to Jesus Christ. You know, that, that's our job to tell people, behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Back in the late 1800s, there was an old Methodist evangelist by the name of Sam Jones. If you can ever get any books that he wrote, they are amazing. Sam Jones used to tell the story of the day when the paddle wheeler steamboats used to travel on the Mississippi River, and they had passengers and cargo. And whenever two paddle wheel steamboats would pass each other on the Mississippi River, all the passengers would go to the rail, and they'd wave to all the people on the other boat. And on one particular day, two paddle wheelers were passing on the Mississippi, and one guy who was working down in the, as a fireman feeding the furnace jumped up and went up on top of deck, and he pointed at the captain of the passing paddle wheel, and he said, Yonder, look, yeah, yeah, look, there goes the best captain on the entire Mississippi River. And there was a passenger that said to this fireman, well, what makes you think he's the best captain on the Mississippi River? He said, I'll tell you why. Several years ago, I was the fireman on his boat, and a terrible storm came up, and I was blown overboard, and I can't swim. 
And that's the captain who, who dove into the water and he saved my life. I owe my life to him. And then he said this, and ever since then, I just love to point him out. <laughs> you know, isn't that the way we are with Jesus? It's exactly like the song says, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me now safe am I and I don't know about you brothers and sisters but I just love to point him out ever since then that's our job point people to find and follow God here's the second thing we learn about John the Baptist we find forgiveness when we make a u-turn toward God now in many many cities making a u-turn while you're driving is illegal but the city that I've lived in the last 30 years, we are an entire community of U-turners. I'll tell you why. For many years, Loop 323, you know, the main loop there in Tyler, you had a middle lane that, that you could pull into to pull out. And you know what we call that? We call that the suicide lane. Because there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wrecks as people would try to pull out there and cross over and get around. So our city, they put paved dividers in every median around Loop 323. So now, if you want to go back there, you have to go up here and make a U-turn. We, we are a community of U-turners. And what a good picture, because that's what a picture of repentance is. It's making a U-turn. Look at verse 4 again. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What a simple message. It was this, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, you need to understand that John was not the first person that dunked people, okay, for a spiritual reason. Many of the Jews did this at Qumran and even at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They had these things called mikvahs, which means bath. And before they would go up onto the Temple Mount, a man would walk down a set of stairs into this mikvah that had water. He would wash himself up and then walk up the other set of steps, putting on a fresh new white robe. Then he was ceremonially pure, and he could present his offering to the priest. And so what John was doing was not, was not new in mode. It was new in meaning. He said, you folks need to confess your sin, admit you are a sinner, repent of your sin, and then you are baptized. What a simple message. Repent and receive the forgiveness of sins. You know, that's what I've always loved about the Bible. The truth of the Bible is not complicated. It is so simple. Did you know the entire Ten Commandments contain only 297 words? Did you know the entire story of the loving father, which some call the prodigal son, only has 504 words in it? Now, compare that to an average sermon of a Baptist preacher. I'm going to give you about 3,000 words over the next few minutes. Compare that to some of the regulations our government publishes. The 2020 IRS tax code had over 1 million words in it. I think the simpler it is, the more valuable it is. You know what the word repent means? It literally means a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. It starts in your mind when you say, this is wrong. And because I believe it is wrong, I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit I will change my behavior. Now, preaching repentance is not popular. I mean, people don't like to be reminded they're sinners. 
And that's why in a lot of the churches today, you don't hear much preaching about repentance. It's more like we just want you to feel good about yourself and just be nice to everybody. There was a great preacher in London by the name of Joseph Parker. And this is what he said about the preacher who preaches repentance. The man whose message is repent sets himself against his age, and he will be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There is but one end for a man off with his head. You had better not preach repentance until you have pledged your heart and your head to heaven. So what happened to John the Baptist? I mean, we don't even get out of chapter 1 in Mark until he is arrested by Herod Antipas. And then later, you know what happened to him? His head was cut off and put on a silver uh, platter. And so preaching repentance is not popular. But it's, it's true, the message throughout the Bible. Now, we don't learn about this in Genesis, but in, in Peter's epistle, when he's talking about Noah, he says this about Noah. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So what does that mean? The whole time he's building the ark, he's saying, you need to repent. This is right. This is wrong. They laughed at him, and they all died by the flood. But think about another Old Testament character, Jonah, who went to Nineveh, and he preached, repent, or you'll be destroyed. And guess what happened? They, they all repented. They repented in sackcloth and ashes, and God withheld judgment against him. That's the message that God still has for every generation. Jesus said, you shall repent or you shall perish. That's the simple message of the Bible. Repent or perish. In fact, here's what the Bible says in Acts 3.10. Peter is preaching and he says, repent then and turn to God. Now, by the way, that's not two turns. That's one turn. Because when you repent, you turn from sin and you turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. (laughs) This is what repent means. You're going in one direction. You're going in the wrong direction. You come to realize the error of your ways. You are under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You change your mind. You change your behavior, and you turn from sin, and you turn to God. (laughs) You know, it, it just baffles me. It actually amuses me sometimes when you be reading somebody Uh, what they've written about how they're going to change their life. This year's going to be different. I've read where people wrote, you know what? I have just made a 360-degree turn in my life. (laughs) You don't need a 360-degree turn. You need a 180-degree turn from your sin to God. Now, Billy Graham first attained notoriety in 1949 when he held a tent crusade outside of Los Angeles. And it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and many celebrities and many Hollywood stars uh, came to hear him preach, and many of them came to faith in Christ. The most notorious Los Angeles gangster at that time was a guy by the name of Mickey Cohen. And if you've seen the movie Bugsy or L.A. Confidential, he's one of the main characters. He really was. He was a gangster. One of the members of his gang went to the crusade one night and was saved. And so he set up an appointment for Billy Graham and Mickey Cohen to have a meal together. And so Billy Graham sits down with Mickey Cohen and shares the gospel with him. And Billy Cohen is so interested. It's like he's sitting on the edge of his seat. He's almost 
almost weeping. He, he wants so much to believe. He wants so much to go to heaven. But, you know, he wasn't saved because he asked this question of Billy Graham. He said, there are Christian football players, Christian cowboys. Why can't I just be a Christian gangster? He really said that. And you know what Billy Graham said later? He said he wanted to come to faith in Christ, but he was unwilling to change, unwilling to repent. So the truth is there, there are many people out there who probably are attracted to the gospel, attracted to the idea of forgiveness of sins, but they just refuse to repent. Our job is to point people to God, to find and follow God. Our, our job is to know that whenever we make a U-turn, we find forgiveness. Here's the third lesson that we learn. The abundant life is more about Jesus and less about me. If you really want to understand the abundant life, it's not about me. It's about Jesus. Now, there was a huge crowd that came out to hear him, and he could have been the most popular preacher in all the nation during that time, but you know what he kept saying? It's not, it's not me. You know, I'm just the announcer. I'm just the forerunner. Someone greater than me is coming. I'm just the warm-up act. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 7, he proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. It was the job of the most menial slave to take off the sandals of their masters and wash their feet. He said, I'm not even worthy to do that. I, I shouldn't even touch his sandals. That's how, how low I am compared to him. You realize, of course, that John had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples, just like Jesus had disciples. And when you go over to John chapter 3, you see they had a little bit of jealousy there because the disciples of John the Baptist came to John and they said, hey, John, we're in trouble because this newcomer, Jesus, all the crowds are going out to him and we're losing our crowd. We got to do something about it. And I love his response. In fact, his response is one of my life verses and I, I closed many, many emails with this verse. Look there, John 3, 28 and 30. John said, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. Oh, by the way, if Jesus was the great I am, John was the great I am not. I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. And then here's the verse I put at the end of a lot of emails. He, that is Jesus, must become greater and I must come become less you know in a generation when we're so self-centered somebody said the hardest instrument to play in the orchestra is second fiddle nobody wants to be number two do they i mean last year after the super bowl if you went into the kansas city chiefs locker room do you think they would have been splashing champagne saying we're number two we're number two we're number two of course not Tomorrow night after Alabama beats Georgia, you think Georgia's going to be saying, we're number two, we're number two. No, nobody wants to be number two. But John the Baptist was willing to say, you know what, there's somebody greater than me. In 2013, the Oxford Dictionary officially made the word selfie the most used word of that year. We never knew that that's what phones were for, did we? We used to use phones to talk. 
Now, that's the last thing we do on these phones, right? And our favorite thing to take a picture of is a selfie. If you ever see me with a selfie stick in my hand, would you kill me? Do you know who took the very first selfie from Greek mythology? There's this dude named Narcissus. And he rejected all romantic advances because he only loved himself. Here's a painting by Caravaggio that shows him looking at his own reflection. And he was so in love with himself that he never had a relationship with anybody else. There was one goddess that called him out of the forest. And Narcissus says, who's there? She said, who's there? And, of course, her name became Echo. This is the first selfie. He was in love with himself. And even today, we have a psychological dysfunction called narcissistic personality disorder. People that only are caring about themselves. John wasn't there. John was saying, you know, it's not, it's not about me. I'm here for Jesus. So I want us to make a confession together, okay? Can we, can we make a confession together? I'd like for you to just say this, these words after me, but you mean them with the same enthusiasm that I say them. Are you ready? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. If you'll make that your motto for 2022, big things, good things will happen in your life. So here's the fourth thing that we learn from John the baptizer. Jesus wants to totally immerse us in God's presence, to totally immerse us in God's presence. Now, as I said, I'm going to talk more about baptism next week when we talk about the baptism of Jesus. But John's talking about a baptism here. And when most of us think of the word baptize, all we're thinking about is water. But there's at least two other kinds of baptism in the New Testament. Jesus talks about a baptism of suffering. But then here he says this. John says in verse 8, I baptize you with water. Remember, let's just go ahead and translate it. I immerse you in water, but he, Jesus, will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that we can understand a little bit about what that means if you take the word that's often being used these days called immersive. Do you know what an immersive experience is? It is an experience that you are so into that it, that it so changes your senses that you have no sense of being where you are at the time you're there. Now, I didn't go, but I've heard several of my friends said they went to Dallas for the Van Gogh experience, because it was an immersive experience for the time that they're there watching it. They were like transported to the time of Van Gogh and to France. Now think about that. What would it be like to be immersed in the Holy Spirit? You'd be so much into the life of God that it's not like you're in Longview on January the 9th, 2022, No, instead, you're like looking at everything from the perspective of heaven, which is what we ought to be doing anyway. The Bible says we set our mind on things above. The Bible says we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That means we have a different perspective. We do not have the perspective of Fox News or CNN. 
We have the perspective of heaven. So that's what it means to be baptized. Let's think about it in terms of just water, okay? Because we understand water. But I'm not talking about water baptism. Let's talk about living water. All right, let's just say I have a glass of living water. Somebody that really wants to learn a little bit more about Jesus and they're interested intellectually in Jesus, okay, let's just pour that on my head, okay? That's how much of the Holy Spirit that they're exposed to. Somebody else says, you know, okay, I, I really want to go to heaven, so yeah, I'm going to trust Jesus for salvation. I don't know yet if I want to make him totally boss Lord of my life, so okay, you know what? Give me a drink. Living water, never thirst again. So what would be a good analogy of being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Here's a swimming pool of living water, and I'm, I'm going to take the plunge. Not really, I'm afraid some of you wouldn't catch me, but <laughs> what would it be like for me to be so immersed and surrounded by the life of God that all the things of earth, really what goes on around me, doesn't bother me? Now, don't you think if something is mentioned in the Bible one time, it's pretty important? What about two times? Yeah, three times, four times, five times. What about six times? Because in all four gospel accounts, we read this statement, John baptized with water, but you should be baptized in the Holy Spirit and Matthew and Luke say, and in fire. And then, that's four times. Then over in Acts chapter 11, when Peter's reporting what happened at Cornelius' house when they were all saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, I remembered the words of Jesus who said that John baptized with water, but you'll be, that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then look at the words of Jesus himself in Acts 1, 4 through 5. What's the setting? 40 days after the resurrection, he's getting ready to ascend to heaven. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, what's the promise? The filling of the Holy Spirit, which he said, you have heard me speak about, meaning this is not the first time I've said it, for John, baptized with, immersed into H2O, but you will be immersed in with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So what happened 10 days later? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost. That's what it means. And I know that there's some charismatic Pentecostal Christians who kind of have it wrong. They talk about, have you had the baptism in the Holy Spirit? And they think of it as some second blessing where you have to speak in tongues and they're wrong on that. It is the filling of the Holy Spirit and not every Christian speaks in tongues. But we are all commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to excess, but be being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be immersed in the very life of God. But you know, the filling of the Holy Spirit is not for our enjoyment to make us feel giddy and make us feel good. It is for our deployment, for our employment. It is for empowerment to serve God and to live the Christian life. That's the message today the world needs to hear. Repent. Repent and turn to God. And I hope that most of you have done that at one time in your life. You repented for salvation, but I've discovered as a believer for all these years, I have repented hundreds of times 
I've had to repent hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of times. When as a Christian, my thinking gets to be stinking and I'm, re- I'm exposed to the truth and I have to change my mind about that and change my behavior. Are you willing to continue to repent every moment the Holy Spirit reveals to you you need to repent? Now, most of you don't know that I, I got my private pilot's license when I was like 22 years old and had a private pilot's license, multi-engine rating, instrument rating. I was a part ownership in a number of airplanes through the years. I hadn't flown in about seven or eight years. But because I flew so much, like every pilot, we're always interested in accident investigation, so how can we learn not to make the same mistake? The deadliest aviation accident in all of history happened in 1977 on the Canary Islands when two fully loaded 747s collided on the runway. You had a KLM 747 at the end of the runway ready to take off. It was so foggy, he couldn't see very far. Controller couldn't see him. There was a Pan Am 747 taxiing up the runway, intending to, to turn off on taxiway and come around behind. The KLM pilot thinks he's got clearance to take off. He's rolling down the runway, and coming out of this fog, the Pan Am captain, Victor Grubb, sees them coming. He guns the engine, turns the wheel as fast as he can, and turns the 747 sideways, and the KLM crashes over at 638 people died that day. 66 survived. Captain Victor Grubbs had passed a taxiway about 200 yards earlier, thinking he would take the next taxiway. He received second and third degree burns on his body, but the next day he was out there looking at the charred remains of those two jumbo jets, and he was heard to say, If only I had turned sooner. If only I had turned sooner. And he was not given blame for the accident, but he carried the guilt with him for the rest of his life. And I just pray, God, there won't be anybody listening to me here or on live stream who lives their life without making that turn. And you die and stand before God, and you have to say, I wish I had turned earlier. The Bible says in Hebrews 3.15, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's bow our heads and pray together. If you would like to repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus, you can do that right now by repeating a prayer that I'm going to lead you in. And just do it silently but sincerely. Dear God, I admit I am a sinner. I'll never be good enough to earn salvation. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for my sins. Right now, I turn from my sins. And I place my faith in you, God. Please take control of my life. I will live for you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.